Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 38. Now as they went on their way, they being the disciples, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we, as we look at your word this morning, as we examine your word, we pray you would examine us through your word. Examine our hearts. Father, we pray that you would, by your spirit, your Holy Spirit would be in us, pointing out where our motivations are governed by functional saviors we have, where we, we want to get something. We don't really want to get you. We want to get something, and we're going to earn it some way. Or Maybe we want you, and we think we have to earn, earn our approval with you as well. Whatever it is, point that out to us, Father. We know that there are some in here who aren't believers who may think that they can be a good person and, and be saved that way, Father. Help their hearts be softened to the fact that they're sinners and in need of a Savior and the one who saves is Jesus. And Father, we know that the rest of us in here who are believers, who are looking to your Son in faith, constantly slip back into being motivated for the wrong ends and trying to get there through the wrong means because, because Father, we, we are constantly losing focus on you and being distracted. We pray that you would work in us this morning and that we would love you and rejoice in you as we hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Why do you do anything that you do? Why do you do anything you do? Why are you a good spouse, a good husband, or a, a good wife? Why, why are you those things? Why are you a good parent, a good mom, or a good dad? Why are you a good businessman, whether it be an employee or an employer? Why do you go about loving others? Why do you serve people whom you serve? Why do you go to church or read your Bible or sing along with Christian music in your car? Why do you do anything you do? No matter what it is, why do you do it? My guess is that a lot of times you do it out of self-justification. Hear that? A lot of times it is an attempt to justify yourself. You either want God or others or even yourself, based on standards you've set for yourself, to think well of you and to approve of you. You may be trying to earn salvation from God in some cases, although I don't think in our culture that's a huge problem that most people are out trying to earn their salvation from God. Most people don't care about God. They don't think they need to be saved from anything. But likely you have some kind of functional savior. What I mean by that is you have something or some outcome 
or someone that you want here more than you want heaven or you want God or any of that. And you're trying to earn that thing or that person or that outcome through the way you live. So how, how do you know if that's the case? How do you know if you really have functional saviors all about that you're trying to worship, that you're trying to earn the approval of, that you're trying to get a hold of and keep for your life? You want to know how you know it? You know it based on, um, based on what happens when you succeed in life, when you fail in life. You can start to find out what motivates you based on what happens when you succeed in life or when you fail in life. When you fail, are you in consternation or are you at rest? When you succeed, are you rejoicing in God and his good gifts or, or are you patting yourself on the back? Are you depressed when you fail or are you still joyful when you fail? You know by what happens when you don't get the outcome that you want or that you think you deserve. Are you angry or sad or frustrated or are you at rest and joyful? If you're a faithful wife and mom, some of you in here are faithful wives and moms and your husbands fail to appreciate it. Or worse, your husbands make decisions that make it harder for you, or they rob from you what you always hoped for for your life and your family. Are you at rest in God in that, or are you bitter? Or maybe you're a guy in here who's worked hard. You have killed it at work. You've been the employee that, or gal, you've been the employee that everybody else ought to be, and you don't get the promotion. And instead, that other guy or that other gal who shouldn't get the promotion got it. And, and even worse, what happens when someone else gets the credit for your work? You know what that looks like? You do a group project at work. You end up doing all the work, and everybody else gets the same credit as you. And it's frustrating, isn't it? When that happens, are you at rest and joyful in the fact that you have the grace of God in Christ and all that you ever need in him? Or are you angry and frustrated and bitter and saying, what's the use? I might as well stop working this hard. What's the use? I might as well stop being such a great wife and mom. He doesn't appreciate it anyway. He keeps frustrating everything I'm trying to do. Maybe you're a loyal friend and you show a loyalty to your other friends better than anybody else ever shows loyalty to you. And you're super loyal to somebody and they stab you in the back. Does your loyalty end there? Do you begin to become suspicious of everybody? Always fearful, always protecting yourself, never willing to be loyal to people again because you know people are just going to stab you in the back? I have a friend who got caught up in that. He's in pastoral ministry, and I remember he gave me a warning at one time. He says, you've got to be careful about the people who pat you on the back all the time because they're looking for a soft place to stick a knife in it. It's pretty cynical. Do you love and serve others? And watch them not show the same love and service to you? Does that ever happen to you? And then you watch them not show the same love and service to you, but they still get the benefits that you're missing out on from your love and service? So do you withdraw your love and service and anger at that point, or do you rest in God's grace to you and keep loving and serving? See, in some way, you're probably, if I went on with the list, you're probably doing what you're doing for you. 
you aren't receiving and resting in the grace of God and Jesus. He's not your savior and reward. You have some functional savior, and you're earning particular outcomes in an attempt to self-justify. Charles Spurgeon tells a story. He's a famous 19th century Baptist preacher from London, probably the most famous, called the Prince of Preachers. He had a church of some 20,000-plus people. Um, That's in a day when there weren't many megachurches. And Charles Spurgeon tells the story of a, a man. It's, it's a fictional story, but he tells the story of a man who went to a king. And this is a poor, poor farmer. He lives in a kingdom. He has a great king. And he comes to the king, and he comes into the king's court, and, and he's brought the king his best carrot. He's a poor farmer, and he's brought this, king for the, this carrot for the king. And he walks into the king, and, and the king sees him and says, you can come forward. And the man comes up, and he, he brings the carrot to the king, and he says, I've brought this carrot for you. The king receives the carrot. The king says, you know what? Thank you very much. I'm going to give you all of these lands over here because of what you did for me. I'm going to give you all these lands. The guy is blown away and he's thankful. And people in the court are watching this happen. And one man sees it happens and thinks, if that's what he got for a carrot... What, could he, what, what, what would I get if I brought him my best horse? So this man goes and gets his best horse and comes back to the king, and he's in the castle in the king's court, and he brings the, his best horse to the king, and he says, I've brought you my best horse. And the king says, thank you very much. You may go. I said, wait a minute. i got to object to this. That man brought you a carrot, and you gave him all of these lands. I brought you my best horse, and you gave me nothing in return. And the king looked at the man and said, he brought me a carrot. You brought yourself a horse. See, why do you do anything that you do? Is it because you're receiving and resting in grace or because you're attempting to self-justify by earning God's approval or the approval of others or even of yourself? The Christian life is motivated by and is lived in the reality of there being one thing that's necessary. Do you hear that? It's to be lived in and motivated by the reality of one thing being necessary. We're to be motivated by and to live in the reality of receiving and resting in the grace of God in Jesus. We're to rest in what Jesus has done for us, not in what we can do for him. And when you know who your God is, and when you know what it means to have him, and that you're giving him freely in Jesus, then nothing else really matters, does it? You can rest. Your husband may not be the man you hoped for. In fact, he's likely not. But you can love him because you've been given all you ever needed in Jesus. Your career may not be what you wanted, but you can work hard and joyfully because you have everything you could ever want in Jesus. Your health may not be what you hoped for. Your children may not become what you hoped for. Your house may not be what you always wanted. Your parents may have let you down. Your circumstances might be far from what you ever would have wanted, but you can rest in the fact that you've freely received everything that you could ever want in Jesus. So I want you to see that today in the story of Mary and Martha. Because this story is often misunderstood. And so I want you to see what this story is really about. 
It isn't really about the fact that Martha is bad because she served and Mary's good because she was contemplative and sort of lived this monastic life in which she just sat and, and, and just, you know, did this kind of prayer and all this kind of thing while Martha's out distracted with serving. That isn't the point of the story. That if you just be contemplative and spiritual and monastic, then you'd really have a relationship with God instead of being a person who works hard and serves. That isn't the point. So I want to look at this story and see that the point is really clear that Martha's devotion to service is motivated by self-justification. That's what it's motivated by. And Mary's really motivated by the fact that she's receiving and resting in God's grace in the gospel. And that's what Jesus is pointing to. So let's look at verse 38 of chapter 10 and look first at Martha's devotion and the fact that it's her service is really motivated by self-justification. Now as they went on their way, that's Jesus and the disciples. They're going on their way from where they were after he told them the parable of the Good Samaritan. And they're going on their way. Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. Now I want you to get the information here. Martha is possibly a widow. We're not sure. It seems to be that she's a widow. This seems to be her house. She seems to even be the head of it, even though Martha has another sister named Mary and a brother named Lazarus, who all seem to stay here. Martha seems to be the main keeper of the home, the main one responsible for hospitality. And she's probably a wealthy widow. Now, why do I say that? Because this isn't the first time we see Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They live in Bethany. This is a favorite place for Jesus to visit. He loves this family. He visits them. In fact, he visits them on, he shows up on Saturday of the last week of his life. If you think the Passover week, the week in which Jesus goes to the cross, the last Passover, which he comes into Jerusalem and goes to the cross on that Saturday, if he's killed on Friday, the Saturday preceding that, he arrives potentially the Friday night or Saturday, he arrives there in Bethany at the home of Mary and Martha, Martha and Lazarus. And that's the third time that he goes to their house that we at least have on record, at least, minimum. And he comes there on his way to the cross. He loves this family. We're going to read another account of when he visited them as well this morning. But I want you to understand, he loves his family. And Martha is probably the head of this household, and she's probably in the sense that she's a widow who's wealthy. Why do we say that? Is because her sister Mary at one point, comes out and anoints Jesus. And this is in the last week of Jesus' life as, as Jesus is being prepared. She's preparing him for burial, and I'll get into it in a little bit. She anoints him. The perfume that she uses to anoint him is the equivalent of about thirty-five dollars to $40,000 in today's money. Okay, You're not poor with that kind of perfume laying around the house, right? So she probably has some money. And she serves. Goes into her house. He, Martha welcomed into, him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. So Mary sits and listens to the Lord's teaching as he's in the house. Martha, on the other hand, is distracted with much serving. And the question is, is it, is it bad that she serves? Clearly, it's not bad to serve. We're supposed to show hospitality, are we not? Scripture commands again and again that when someone comes to your house, that you're hospitable, that you care for them. 
We're commanded to serve others. In Proverbs 31, when you read about the woman in Proverbs 31, that is a woman who serves her family day and night. She serves. Her husband and children rise up and call her blessed because of how well she serves them, how well she loves them. The problem with Martha is not that she's serving. The problem with Martha is the motivation for her service. It's why she's serving. Why is she doing what she's doing? And what is what she's doing keeping her from? And why is she doing what she's doing? If you look there, she was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him, that's to Jesus, and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Now, this is an interesting passage because you guys have probably lived this reality. You've probably served somebody before out of the wrong motivation. And you've probably even been potentially even serving in a church out of the wrong motivation. And as you're serving, you're looking around wondering why everybody else is soaking up all the benefits. Meanwhile, I'm serving hard. Setup team, I get here early in the morning and I do all this work and I stay after and I do all this work and I help out so much and all these other people never come and help and they just show up and they enjoy all the benefits. Oh, woe is me. I'm a martyr for the cause. I'm certainly holier than them. Now you may not say that, but you know down deep in your heart you're getting bitter that they're not helping you because you're serving for the wrong motivation. You're motivated by some kind of self-justification. And so when somebody else isn't doing their part, you're constantly noticing it, comparing yourself to them, and you're coming out favorably. You may even be getting angry like Martha is here, and she's not just angry that Mary isn't helping. She's angry with Jesus. Lord, don't you even care? Lord, do you not care that I have toiled all these years for my husband? And he's just sitting around... He's not helping out at all. Are you going to make him do something or not? Lord, don't you care that I have been the faithful husband I'm supposed to be and my wife has been lazy and she hasn't been helping out? Are you going to do something about it or not? Because I'm ticked about it. Don't you care, Lord, that my coworker never pulls their weight and I've got to pull their weight for them? Don't you care at all? You're going to leave me here in this, and they keep getting the same pay I get? How is that fair? Are you going to work so that they have to do something or get them fired? Are you going to do anything to intervene to help me out because I've been slaving away for you, and you don't seem to be doing anything for me? See, Martha's motivated by self-justification. You guys, we get this all the time in counseling office, incidentally. I can't tell you how many times we get in the, and generally counseling, so you know, is for conflict, right? The most likely conflict you're going to have is with your spouse because they're the other extremely selfish person living in your home, right? Okay? It's two of you. So you get in there with your spouse, and you know what happens? What we listen to almost the entire time while you're, we're counseling you is we listen to you each make your list of all the things that you've done in this relationship and how the other person has failed to pull their weight. 
And we listen to self-justification after self-justification after self-justification. And you know those self-justifications are there in your mind and heart all the time. We just hear what we hear. Can I can't even imagine what's happening. Well, I can't imagine because I'm married. I tell you what's going on in your heart or mind all day. As you're justifying yourself, pointing out all the things that you're bringing to the table, wondering why they're not, and if your relationship gets bad enough, if it gets to that point where the bitterness grows strongly enough and takes root in your heart and starts to choke out your life, you start to become cold and angry with God at that point. And then you start to wonder when God is going to do anything about your marriage. I've been serving and loving and they haven't been reciprocating. Because, see, I've been serving or loving to, f- to serve my functional Savior. And my functional Savior is that I have the kind of marriage I always hope to have. That I have a spouse who treats me this way. And so I do all this in hopes that I would have that marriage. And now that I'm not getting that marriage, I'm ticked off at you, God. And I'm ticked off at them. And they've disappointed me. My wife disappointed me in this way. I worked hard for this marriage, and now I don't have the marriage I always wanted. I parented my children. Moms, I see it on your faces all the time. I have disciplined my kids, and I have loved my kids, and I have given everything to my kids, and this is how they treat me? This is how they respond? They disrespect me this way? So whose sake did you love them for, yours or theirs? For whose sake did you serve them? Yours or theirs? See, when I start demanding something that I need in order to serve you or love you, I demonstrate something to you, don't, don't I? I demonstrate that I'm loving you for my sake. That my functional Savior is not, is not my Savior is not Jesus. I'm not looking forward to my eternal reward in him, knowing I don't need anything from you because I have everything I could ever want in Jesus, and so I don't need anything from you. What I need to do is serve you and love you and recognize I have everything I could ever want in him. And now I can just serve you and love you no matter what you do to me. But that's not where we usually live, is it? We usually live where Martha is here, don't we? If we're honest, we sympathize with Martha Martha's taking care of the household. Martha's doing all the hospitality. Martha's serving. Mary's sitting on her bottom. Martha's slaving away in the kitchen, trying to get the dinner ready, trying to greet the guests, trying to make everybody feel comfortable. Perhaps she's even washing the guests' feet because it's one of the things that you did. And she's doing all these things for these people. And she's killing herself, and her sister is sitting there in her mind being lazy. Martha's devotion to service, though, is motivated by self-justification. She's distracted. But here's the thing you need to understand. When Jesus says, when it it says here in the text that Martha was distracted in verse 40 with much serving, the point isn't this, because I hear this. It came out in the early church. It wasn't necessarily popular throughout all the early church, but it came out then early on in teaching about this passage and has later become increasingly popularized that what's really happening here is that Mary understands that the Christian life is the contemplative life. It's the life in which the person basically it lives monastically. They, they go out in solitude and hear from the Lord and they have this sort of ultra-spiritual life. You guys know what I'm talking about? And then and you get so distracted with all that service and all the busyness of the world. And so what you really need to do is like move to Big Sur and camp out in a tent and commune with God. If you're going to be really spiritual. That isn't what the passage is about. 
The problem isn't Martha's service. The problem is Martha's motivation to service and her distraction from the fact that what she really needs is Jesus. Mary, on the other hand, is motivated by receiving and resting in God's grace in the gospel. Hear that? She's motivated by receiving and resting in God's grace in the gospel. Look look there with me at verse 39 again. And she, that being Martha, had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Jesus, in this passage, if we understand the context, is on his way to Jerusalem to die. And Jesus is preparing his disciples for his death, in which he will go and pay the penalty for their sin. And Mary wants to sit and listen to him teach about this. She knows, she knows that what she needs is him, and she's resting in the fact that she's receiving the grace of God in Christ. She's resting in it. She doesn't need to earn anything. She doesn't need Martha's approval. She doesn't need to approve of herself. She doesn't need to earn God's approval. She recognizes that all the approval she ever needs before God or anyone else is sitting right in front of her teaching her. And his name is Jesus. And he's the same yesterday and today and forever. And he is our hope and our righteousness. And she gets that. Now, how do I know Mary gets that? Because Mary is a, an astounding disciple. Now, I want you to understand this. Martha becomes an astounding disciple as well. Just right here, Jesus has to turn her around. But Mary is an astounding disciple. She probably gets more about the death of Jesus and what it's about than probably anybody else, what his mission is about than probably any of the other disciples, male or female. So why do I say that? Hold your hand there in Luke 10 and look to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. That's where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, John chapter 12 is referring back to John chapter 11 when Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. That's where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived in Bethany. So they gave a dinner for him there at Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house. And Martha served. And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. That's about, so you understand, which, which is about, if you look down to um, Judas's comment about 300 denarii, it could have been sold for 300 denarii, says that in verse 5. 300 denarii is about 300 days' wages, um, so somewhere in the thirty dollars to $40,000 range. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? You know that's what Judas Iscariot was interested in, right? Self-justification coming in. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charged the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with me, or with you, but you do not always have me. Now here's what's interesting about this. Jesus points to what it is that Mary knows she's doing. 
Mary's preparing him for burial. Six days before his death, potentially seven days before his death, depending on how you work out the chronology there, Mary's preparing him for burial. Mary knows he's come to die. She understands, we'll have the poor with us always, but this is the king, the Messiah, and he's come to die, and I'm going to spend my money on him. I'm going to pour my perfume out on him, and I'm going to go through what is a normal preparation for burial ritual, and I'm going to prepare him for that. The other disciples still don't get it almost all the way up to the cross, or all the way up to the cross, and even after until they see him resurrected. But Mary seems to get this. And she seems to be motivated from the times we see him show up at her house here in Luke 10 to the time he shows up at her house at her, and even his death. She seems to be motivated by the fact that all that matters to her is that she needs Jesus. That's it. She understands that she's a sinner. And that she has no place with God because of her sin that she's his enemy. And she understands that she needs someone to save her from that sin. And in some small way, although probably not fully like we read in Romans, in some small way, she understood that Jesus' mission was to come and die for her. And that she needed that. And she's resting in it. And she's receiving that. And Jesus goes on to comment about this. If you look at verse 41, but the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. That one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion. That's a play on words, incidentally. It's some kind of a pun. He's, Mary's chosen the good food. which will not be taken away from her. What's the one thing necessary that Mary chose that she was supposed to? It's that she receives the grace of God and Jesus and she rests in it. That she wants to hear from him. She needs his grace. And more than serving him, more than earning the approval of the other guests at the party, more than making sure her sister Martha is happy with her, what Mary knows she needs more than anything else is Jesus. And she needs to hear from him. And she needs to hear from him as much as she can. And she needs to prepare herself and him for his day. Mary does the one thing necessary. She receives and rests in grace in Christ. That's what she does. What if the one thing necessary to believe in Jesus to receive his grace through faith. To rest in him as your reward has, has never been what you've done. It's never been what you've done. Instead, you've chased all these things in the world that you prefer to him. And even when you've looked to him, you've thought, well, the way I'm going to get approval with him is, is by doing the right things. I, my good works outweigh my bad. And oh, you know, I know I believe, need to believe in Jesus to be saved and it's through faith and it's by grace, but, you know, that's, that's a nice little add-on to my life, and, right? And what I'm going to do, though, is I'm going to have that on the side, but really I'm going to pursue all these functional saviors because he's just sort of a nice thing over here. He isn't my life. 
I don't really think the one thing necessary in my life is to rest in him, to receive his grace. But what if that's the state of your heart and always has been? What do you do? You, you repent. That means you turn from where you currently are in your sin and self-righteousness and self-justification, and you turn to Jesus. And you see him as your reward, and you see him as your Savior, and you see him as your Lord, and you see him as your life, and you rest in him, and you receive from him. You believe in him. That's it. And if you do that, he's yours. And you walk with him. What if, what if you've, you have done the one thing necessary, but you continue to fail to live that consistently? Does that, does that include anybody in the room other than me? What if I keep slipping back into this sort of Martha mindset? Right? See, great. The gospel, that whole Jesus dying for my sins part, that got me into the door of the house. But once I'm in the house, i got to do the rest of it. If I really want God to approve of me, I really got to check all these boxes. I got to make sure I do all these things. I know Jesus saved me, but I got to hold on to that game. I got to play it. I got to make sure that I work it out so that he doesn't toss me aside. I got to keep slipping back in. Or maybe it's not even that. Maybe, maybe you don't really get that guilty about your sin before God. You're just not a person who struggles with that. Maybe you're just running after functional saviors all the time. At the meantime, going, this is wrong. I need to turn back to Jesus. But I keep wanting this thing more. What do you do? I mean, is there hope for you? Is there hope for you that you can ever be a person who's motivated by the one thing that's necessary, which is just to receive God's grace in Jesus and rest in him? Is there any hope for you that that will ever be the state in your life that you can, now I'm not saying perfectly without sin, but is there ever a possibility that that's the predominant, the predominant strain and direction of your life that you're motivated by resting and receiving in Jesus? Yes. In order to see that, I want you to look at Martha again. Because here you see Martha not getting it. But I don't want to leave Martha here at the low point of the story where Mary's fantastic and Martha's just a wretch, okay? Martha gets it. Jesus cares about Martha too, and he brings Martha to salvation. And Martha gets it, and I I want you to look, John chapter 11, turn there. Because I want you to see that Martha makes one of the two great confessions of Christ in the New Testament, Peter makes one of the great confessions. You know that when Jesus comes to Peter and he says to Peter, Simon Peter, you know, who do you say that I am? He's talking to the disciples, asks, who do others say that I am? And he turns to them and says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for you. This was not given to you by flesh and blood, but this, you received this from God. And he commends him because Peter makes one of the great confessions of faith among all the disciples. Well, there's two people who make great confessions of faith among the disciples. One is Peter, the other is Martha. Hear that? I know sometimes we think that it's just the men who've got it together here, but pay attention. One is Peter, the other is Martha. And when you get to the cross, it's the women who are the only ones who are still around. Let's look at this story, chapter 11 of John Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, 
the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Lazarus is their brother. It's Martha's brother. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with, with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now, so you know, this is looking forward, actually, to chapter 12. And it's such a familiar story that Mary did this that the author just, John just inserts it here so that you know who, which Mary we're talking about. When we say he's the brother, Mary was a popular name. You can't even keep track of all the Marys in the Gospels practically. It's a very popular name at the time. So just letting you know, this is the Mary I'm talking about. Mary and Martha, this is their brother Lazarus. You know, the ones who live in Bethany, you know, Mary, the one who anointed the Lord with all that oil. Okay. So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. See, they knew Jesus loved Lazarus. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. In other words, that's not going to be the ultimate outcome of this illness. We know Lazarus dies, but that isn't the ultimate outcome. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, here's the so that. You ready? Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. So... He did something startling. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That ought to startle you a bit. He loves him, so he hears he's sick, and so he doesn't go and help him? What? Lazarus ends up dying, incidentally. By the time Jesus gets there, he's dead almost four days. Jesus lets this woman's brother go through horrible suffering and death because he loves him and because he loves her and because he loves his sister Mary because he wants to teach them something bigger than them. He wants them to learn that he is their hope. So he goes on in verse 17. I want to go forward. Jesus finally arrives. When Jesus came, he found that Lazarus was already, had already been buried in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained, in the seat, remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You, you, you hear Mary, or Martha's pain here, I'm sorry? You hear what Martha's, Lord, you could have shown up and stopped this. That's quite a bit of faith in him, isn't it? He didn't have to die. If you'd have come, he wouldn't, this wouldn't have happened. And you could almost hear, do you love us? Yeah, I love you. That's why I didn't come. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. That's a lot of faith, incidentally. I trust what your word says in Daniel chapter 12, that there will be a resurrection on the last day. He'll rise again. I trust because he looked to you He'll rise again. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection 
and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he sh- shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? In other words, Mary, he's going to li- raise in the last day because I'm the resurrection of life. Or Ma- Martha, I'm sorry. I'm the resurrection of life. I'm the one who's giving him life on that last day. Do you believe it's about me? Do you believe that? You say he's going to raise in the last day, but do you believe it's about me? That I'm the one who does that. She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. Hear that great confession Martha makes? I've just seen my brother die. Jesus said he's going to rise again. Martha says, well, that resurrection is going to be on the last day. Jesus doesn't correct her and say, no, I'm about to give him life in a few minutes. Just wait. doesn't say that. What does he say to her? You're right, he will rise again on the last day because I'm the resurrection and life, and I'm the one who will give him life. Do you believe that? Yes, I do. I believe that you are the resurrection and life. I, I believe that you are the Son of God, the Christ who's coming into the world. Even though I'm sitting here seeing my brother dead and buried over there, and I know that you love us and still didn't come when you could have to save his life. I believe that you're the resurrection of life. I believe that you're the son of God who's coming into the world. I believe that you're the Christ. See, Martha gets it. Martha knows there's something more important than even her brother's life here. Martha knows that her functional savior that her family would be together and that all would be well for her and her sister and her brother isn't what matters most. Martha knows that what matters most is Jesus. See, it happens, doesn't it? Jesus worked in Martha. Before, she thought what mattered most was her own work. Now she realized what matters most is him. And she's changed. And Jesus later raises him but I want you to see how this plays out because look to chapter 12 again and John chapter 12 again, and I want to conclude with this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. See, this is another occasion which he visits. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Hear that? Martha served. She didn't serve as one who needed to justify herself anymore. She's not rebuked here for her service. Her service is seen here in John as a good thing because she's one who's motivated. She's motivated by the fact that she's receiving and resting in the grace of God and Jesus. And so she serves. See, Martha's problem isn't that she served. It's why she did what she did. The one thing necessary in the Christian life is that we receive and rest in the grace of God and Jesus. He is all we could ever want, and we receive him freely by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now we can do what we do knowing we have all that we need in him. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to live the Christian life in such a way that we aren't distracted by what we think is important, by functional saviors, by 
trying to justify ourselves in some way, but, Father, in such a way that we know that Jesus is what matters most, that we would rest in him, that we'd receive grace through him, that we would know that he is our hope and our righteousness, that he is the one to whom we look. And so, Father, no matter what comes, no matter what comes in life, in our families, in our marriages, in our careers, no matter what comes, Father, we can continue to serve you and not grow bitter and not grow angry and not feel like it's futile and we might as well give up and chuck it because, Lord, we know that, that we've received all we could ever want in Jesus. We receive that freely, and so now we just serve you joyfully and as those who are at rest in you. In Jesus' name. Amen.